Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Seaton. With this episode, we are launching what we hope will be a regular feature of this feed, a series produced and hosted by a scholar other than myself. In this case, your host for the next three episodes will be Mika Turim Nigren. Mika first came to our attention in 2020 with her article, Mark Twain's Modernism. In 2021, she was a Quarry Farm Fellow and will be returning to Elmira later this summer for both the Quadrennial Conference on the State of Mark Twain Studies and our inaugural Emerging Scholars Workshop, co-sponsored by the Mark Twain Circle of America. Before I hand things over to Mika, I want to update you on some of our exciting upcoming programming. That Quadrennial Conference, the biggest gathering of Twain scholars in the world, organized this year by Shelley Fisher-Fishkin and Tracy Wooster, will take place in early August. Our keynote will be given this time by Jimmy Santiago Baca. Many of the plenaries, panels, and roundtables will be recorded and published via our YouTube channel and MarkTwainStudies.com. Later this year, we are excited to host another Quarry Farm Fall Symposium, this time on Abolition Studies, co-organized by Jess Goldberg and Nancy Quintanilla, with a keynote by Sarah Haley, the author of No Mercy Here, Gender Punishment, and the Making of Jim Crow, Modernity. Many of the presentations from the symposium will also make their way to our digital archives. So, keep your eyes on MarkTwainStudies.com for frequent updates. Finally, on this feed you can expect a lot more content before the end of the year. Three new series of The American Vandal are currently in production. Thank you for supporting the pod and the Center for Mark Twain Studies, and I know you will enjoy Mark Twain Among the Indians. Hi, I'm Mika Turim Nigrin, filling in for Matt Siebold as your guest host today on the American Vandal podcast. Today, we're returning to our Twainian roots with a deep dive into one of the most under-examined issues in Twain studies today, Mark Twain's attitudes toward Native Americans. Amidst all the controversial subjects that have embroiled Twain scholarship over the years, Twain's negative portrayals of Native characters have received surprisingly little critical attention until now. When Carrie Driscoll published her landmark work, Mark Twain Among the Indians and Other Indigenous Peoples in 2018, we were forced to grapple with the lacuna surrounding indigenous issues that has existed in our field for far too long. Over the next three weeks, I'll be bringing you a series of interviews with Carrie and some of her key interlocutors, including a spokesperson for the Washoe Tribe of Nevada. For now, in part one of our three-part mini-series, we'll be exploring the overwhelmingly positive response to Carrie's book coming from within Twain Studies itself. We'll be hearing from three prominent Twain scholars, Anne Ryan, Susan Harris, and John Bird, all of whom agree that Mark Twain Among the Indians is, and I quote, the most important book in Twain Studies in the last 25 years. In their estimation, what makes Carrie's book so valuable is that it doesn't just take Twain to task for his vitriol toward Native Americans. 
Instead, it situates Twain's anti-Native views within a deeply embedded cultural context that continues in the United States to this day. We discuss the woefully inadequate coverage of Native issues in American classrooms, which gives us the chance to turn Carrie's critical lens on our own pedagogical practices. Ultimately, Carrie's book challenges us to teach a less whitewashed version of history than the one we were brought up with. Getting us started today is Anne Ryan, who is both a professor of English at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York, and the former editor of the Mark Twain Annual. Anne wanted me to preface our conversation by shouting out that all her understanding of Native issues comes from Carrie herself, who deserves full credit for them. Anne, your review of Mark Twain Among the Indians and Other Indigenous Peoples called the book one of the few works in the field that deserves to be called definitive. Can you talk a bit about why? It's the kind of scholarship that a lot of people just aren't doing anymore. It's the kind of scholarship that would take you 10 years. She is so rigorous. There isn't one thread she would pick up that she wouldn't then go, well, wait, maybe I should follow this to its end. So if she found a reference to an illustration that maybe showed up in some flyer that Twain might have seen, Carrie's going to find it. For me, it gives it all this rich, granular detail, but a lot of it, it's just really good. And I think that a few of the people who were more lukewarm about it, I don't know that they read the whole thing. I'd like to, I'd really like to quiz you on this one. So I think it's a real accomplishment. You know, what's weird is that there hasn't been enough response from the Native community about this book. And I think because maybe, again, people are like, think that she's celebrating Twain in some way. It's like, she's not. Even though she says in her very introduction, the point of this is not to redeem Twain. And in fact, I want to counter the narrative, which is so easy to fall into, that Twain is on some kind of redemptive arc over the course of his lifetime, which people are so attached to in the other racial debate. The need in America to redeem Twain's racial views and to pat ourselves on the back about how far we've come. She's very explicit that at least when it comes to Native Americans, it is not possible to fit Twain into that redemption arc. Yeah, well, I think my review, one of the things that is so deeply entrenched in Twain studies is the heroicizing of Mark Twain. Even for critics who think they're being particularly incisive about his work or his life, you know, and I'm not sure why that is. I often say to my students, look, we don't have to worry about his feelings. He's dead. We can say what we think. What Twain is, is a really phenomenal artist who in his personal life had remarkable flaws. But I think that the culture needs so much to have the white man in the white suit represent the best part of ourselves that we're going to do anything in order to defend that image. Twain himself would have been troubled by that approach. And he was also someone who was interested in taking down icons. I mean, look at what he does to James Fenimore Cooper. So I think it's very hard for communities to detach themselves from that affection. Let's layer on top of that the fact that we have museum spaces, cultural spaces that bring in money, that support communities that we want to keep going. 
you have Twain's house in Hartford. You know, we want people to keep going on those tours. I mean, Hannibal, forget it. Hannibal like completely erases the line between fiction and history so that you go to Hannibal and you can go and see where Tom painted the fence. Tom didn't have a fence. So I think to get back to Carrie's book, she seems very clearly to me to be wanting to position Twain, first of all, within his own biography, the family history. And she totally debunks the idea that he was traumatized by the stories that his grandmother told. If that's true, then why is his brother an advocate for Native American rights? That was one of the aspects of the book I found most fascinating because, like you, I had read Twain's letters. I had seen his, let's say, less than proud or enthusiastic endorsements of Orion and had kind of dismissed him as a 'er ne'er-do-well and whimsical dreamer. And then the work here he does, like, I had no idea he wrote this poem. I had no idea he was so competent. One of the other sort of small discoveries, not even that small, I mean, it's wonderful. She redeems Orion. You see a person of some integrity. Orion may be the guy who's on a progressive journey into enlightenment. (laughs) Twain's a humorous, and humorists like pain. They like to cause it. That's where the humor comes from. And occasionally Twain will lob a grenade into a community and watch it explode because it's fun, because there's a sort of mean streak in him. This is where a lot of great comedy comes from. I think that the desire to explain away Twain's racism is a bad impulse. It involves a fundamental misreading on two axes. One, misreading his personal views, which we may or may not care about as Twain scholars. But two, it it involves misreading him in terms of genre. Yeah. to take him as like some kind of earnest crusader in this political battle of his times, it's not the kind of writing he's doing. No. And there are moments in Carrie's book where she explores the possibility that what he is is a contrarian, that at a time when we start to see the aestheticizing of the Native American, once we have firmly stamped tribes out and raped, murdered, and dispossessed them, then we can start to erect all these incredible romantic visions of Native Americans. And so the Noble Red Man chapter, which is one of my favorites, she says, okay, maybe part of what's happening here is that Twain is responding to the sentimentality of representations of Native peoples. But she doesn't leave it at that. After debunking the sentimentality, he goes in and swings towards a more ugly caricature of Native Americans. And so I think the better way to teach and to position this within Twain's work is to represent him as a kind of average American. He's not exceptional. This is part of what's happening all over the United States. I think the incongruity, the irrationality of racism is woven into the fabric of the country. And Twain is no different than that. In terms of what distinguishes Twain's scholarship from fan service mm-hmm. is when you start to think about it as a means of articulating certain veins of American history yeah. in imminent ways. Right. So it gives us this access to a moment in time, a moment in culture. It's a kind of entire construct, an entire structure yeah. that we can tap into. It is because it embodies the views of its time that it's interesting. Right. Right. I think 
any effort to to sidestep these ugly moments in Twain is an abandonment of our responsibility as scholars, obviously, but also a missed opportunity to teach. And what Carrie gives us in this book is this incredibly detailed record of all the ways in which Native peoples were betrayed and violently treated throughout the 19th century. There were, it's painful to use the word in plural, there were massacres that she's talking about and that I'm ashamed to say I had never heard of. And so she brings this all to the surface and she makes it clear that Twain had These were events in the public record that he was well aware of the suffering that was around him. He turned it into the punchline of jokes. Yeah. Not just the fabric or texture, but actually the punchline lands on the idea of killing natives. Yeah. And that's where the humor is in service to a larger process of dehumanization that you have to engage in in order to live out this political goal which is to eliminate Native peoples so that we can continue this imperialist move across the West. And the humor at times is in service of that. What you were saying earlier about there's one logic of manifest destiny, but there's another logic of extermination or annihilation in which you have to prefigure the demise of Native tribes as if they were always already going to be extinguished. It's just natural. Just, yeah, of course, like they were already disappearing by the time we got here. With no mention of disease or warfare. I said to my, I always say to my students, if you're in a novel called The Last of the Mohicans and you're one of two Mohicans in that novel, things aren't going to go well for you. Like someone's going. And, you know, this is why I think his response to Fenimore Cooper is so interesting. Fenimore Cooper, for all that's wrong about the Leatherstocking tales, at least like Uncas is sexy and Chingachgook is kind of noble. There's a way in which some amount of humanity is given to those characters that never surfaces for any Native character in Twain's fiction. Carrie's very good on this, where she, I think, is also really groundbreaking, is in what she does when he goes on his world tour and his response to the Maori. As soon as he gets out of the country, Twain scholars want to start to celebrate this sort of enlightenment that Twain says travel destroys prejudice and on that account, everyone needs to do it. Great. But it doesn't really. It doesn't bring him home with a changed view of Native peoples. He is still, for the most part, associating with the privileged classes where he's traveling. And yes, I think he grows over the course of a lifetime. Yes, I think he adopts some broader views But it would be more interesting to think of it instead of it as this geometrical movement that you can chart from point A to point B. Twain's response to issues of race, it's much closer to something like dancing. He goes back and forth and he moves in circles and he turns around. I don't think it's productive to imagine him in this kind of simplistic course of study where he learns a lesson. I think it's much more complicated as it is for all of us. That actually leads me into a question I had, because when I said your review picked up on certain things in Carrie's book, I know she says that geography was a really important orchestrating principle for her in this work. 
we all have these kinds of questions as we're trying to figure out how to put the book together and how it wants to think. She realized that place was really an important orchestrating principle for Twain. And he says this at one point, he says that humans are chameleons, that Mm -hmm. if you need to change your attitudes, perspectives, your principles, your politics, just go to another location and you will pick it up and absorb wherever you are. Well, I think that what Carrie does first is dismantle the travel structure. Instead of thinking of Twain's movements in terms of travel, which keeps him kind of above the space, right? He's just sort of moving through it as a tourist or an observer. The movement is driven by his need for money, by his need to escape. But I think that what Carrie seems to be doing is looking at the way in which, as you suggested, when he lands in a place, it allows him in a very postmodern way to deconstruct his identity and to construct a new one. Now, that possibility, she reads this very well in terms of the cover image of Innocence Abroad. When he has this amalgamation of costumes, he's got his cowboy hat and a Native American garb. and He has a tomahawk with the American flag on it. Right, right. And again, like what you want to do is to say, oh, we'll see, see what he's doing there. He's deconstructing the idea of America. He's giving us an identity that isn't bound to one particular place. And I think what she does instead is, is almost say, well, how'd he get that tomahawk? It's because he's allowed himself to play with these things, because these are only costumes. You know this concept of playing Indian that, again, links Twain to a much larger historical discourse dating back to the Boston Tea Party. It's almost as if we need this imaginative projection to be able to conceptualize ourselves as Americans, indigenous, distinct from the British. Right. In its own way, akin to blackface. Eric Lott, who's done a lot with, I like his last work, Black Mirror. I think it's a great book. One of the things he suggests is that this desire to kind of drag race, to put yourself in the costume of another race is a way of negotiating our own anxieties about white identity. And clearly, I think that's part of what Twain is doing when he dresses up as a Native person. But it's also a joke at the expense of the Native culture, right? It has to be. It moves in that direction, too. I think what Eric Lott does so well is explain how this paradigm can be both intensely liberating for white authors, the space to free themselves from convention and from certain reified expectations of language, and also incredibly constraining then for Black authors who are always slotted into a stereotyped way of speaking, writing, expressing themselves. Right. I mean, Eric Lott's argument about blackface is about how these kinds of constructions were really important to the creation of modern American writing. Yeah. But the playing Indian goes back to the early days of the Republic. Mm-hmm. In some ways, is even more foundational. Even right. earlier than that, in the Salem Witch Trials, right? When you have, mm-hmm. you know, Tichaba and John Indian, two of the original accused of witchcraft, all this projection of the dark man in the woods... I was just finishing In the Devil's Snare by Mary Beth Norton, where she's looking at the way in which King Philip's King William's War, right around the Salem Witch Trials, really fuel the anxieties of the white settlers and create this gothic image of the haunting native demon. 
So I think to go back to your original question about geography, I guess I don't think that Twain digs into the places that he occupies and completely reconstructs his attitude about Native peoples. I think he reconstructs his attitude about his own whiteness and masculinity, his position in relationship to American culture. I mean, I don't want to be simplistic about my criticism of Twain either. He's a brilliant satirist, and he takes down American mm-hmm. culture in some really powerful ways. But it also really embraces being a representative of it, you know? There's nothing he loves more than making fun of British royalty. What I actually love about Twain, and this will surprise people because I've had friends in the Twain community suggest that I actually don't like Twain. He's an idea as far as I'm concerned. I mean, he's as much a fiction as any of his characters. But having said that, what I really like about him is there's something so profoundly corrupt about him. know, that he's, and that he sort of owns it a little bit. So yeah, he's going to criticize the British while also really loving the fact that Oxford is giving him a gown that he can wear and he's going to get an Oxford degree. He calls himself a native in the speech accepting it. That was another thing that Carrie found. Right, 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 right. To go back to Carrie's book, the amount of material that she unearths is just phenomenal. And I think for scholars of Native American culture and history and literature, it's a treasure trove, which is why I am surprised that there hasn't been more celebration of the book by that scholarly community, because it does such a good job of holding Twain accountable. There are one or two critics who thought she could have gone even farther, but I think that also overly personalizes it. Again, the point is not to sort of bring Twain down. The point is to reveal the culture that created a Mark Twain in the first place. It's the cultural study that's more interesting than whether or not the individual author was somehow transcendently good or transcendently evil. And on these Mm -hmm. questions of connection to the land and who has ownership, who has rights to the land, who does it belong to, the fact that Twain can move through the world so freely and can, in a sense, claim possession of each place he goes to is itself very indicative of his subject position in relationship to the native peoples being forced off their land into reservations who have a connection to a very specific and delimited sense of place that Mm -hmm. they no longer have access to. Right. Whereas he is traveling the world, can Mm -hmm. go anywhere and feel at home. Yeah, well, you know, I I recently wrote a little piece about this, and I went back to the section of Huck Finn where Jim has just been tricked by Huck and Tom, and the hat was put on the tree, you know, that whole thing. And afterwards, Huck says, well, you know, every time Jim told the story, the witches flew him around a wider and wider spot. First, they flew him around the town, then around the county, then around the state, then around the world. And one of the things that I have been thinking about is that's not just a dream of escape. That's not just a dream of a slave who wants to then be free. That's a hunger for a wider world. It's a desire to travel the world, to see the world. And Jim wants that adventure. I always think that word that Twain tacks onto those two novels, adventures of. What you're suggesting is that kind of humanity, which Twain recognizes in himself, recognizes in his African-American characters, cannot recognize in the Native person. And Carrie makes this point to such an extent that he turns one Native character into a kind of petrified man. 
she's saying that the little hoax, the petrified man, and I think very convincingly, is actually about Native peoples. Yeah. And encapsulates Twain's attitudes better even than something like the noble red man. The idea that this Mm -hmm. thing is already dead, fossilized, and completely reified, and also fake. Because the point of the petrified man is that he's not really petrified, he's just pretending to be. But I still think the idea of the immovable, the sort of planted native person is pretty clear. And when he describes the ghost shoot Indians, there's this sense in which they're kind of unevolved, not fully developed human beings, barely sentient, it seems like. And that's a mean streak that you don't see in any of his other portraits of indigenous characters, the Chinese, the African-Americans, you don't see. It's a very, very pointed loathing. That seems to me to be the geography that she's interested in. The comparative geography. Right. Yeah. One of the moments that was most convincing for me is when she does this kind of comparative analysis of the way he talks about burial practices among the Gosha Indians and has this visceral disgust and compares that to the way he writes about when he goes to India and he feels bewilderment, but also curiosity about something that could be considered a certain kind of noble sacrifice. And just the visceral embody loathing for the ways that Native peoples eat and construct their lives. In a piece that I had worked on about Twain and the poor, one of the ways that I contextualized that response to the ghost shoots is Twain's, you use the word visceral, he has this truly bodily disgust at dirt. And you see it throughout his responses to the poor. It's the dirty poor. It's the unwashed masses. You see it in his response to poor kids in New York City and in beggars in Italy. Something about what happens to the body when it becomes impoverished. That's where that white suit, I think, is such an interesting gesture. He wants to distance himself from that. But here I am doing precisely the thing that I think we want to be careful of is psychoanalyzing Twain's racist responses in a way that let him off the hook a little bit. I think what Carrie does so well is that she depersonalizes some of that and shows it as a pattern within the culture. We are now upset by Twain's representation of Native peoples. 19th century Americans were not. Actually, that leads into another thing I wanted to bring up, because I think your characterization is absolutely right, that most readers would not have objected to any of these really horrific flights of rhetoric on Mm -hmm. Wayne's part. At the same time, Carrie does a phenomenal job of bringing up all these progressive voices that Twain is hearing from Orion that we mentioned, his brother, his fellow journalist, Dan DeCleel, different advocates for different kinds of Native groups, both domestically and abroad. Mm -hmm. You write... His recreating representation of Native Americans as, quote, savages is something more than an unconscious response to childhood trauma or an uninformed faux pas, nor is it the consequences of immaturity or ignorance. It reads itself like a conscious choice. Yeah. Almost this kind of tension between him being a product of his era and having the counterfactual of people who made a different series of choices. Well, I think that what's interesting about the notion that he's making a choice. It is a choice that the culture is also making. With each one of those massacres that she describes, which go on for so long and so consistently throughout the 19th century, it feels like Twain's humor at times is just the verbal parallel to that. When I say that it's a conscious choice, we would like it to be an unconscious response to childhood trauma, 
we would like it to be part of a psychological fear that he may become like the impoverished other. We'd like to pretend that it's possible to learn your way to a better, more noble appreciation of the other. That he has literally traveled from the dark to the light. But the fact is that choice he makes is to follow the lead of the culture that he lives in, which prefers to imagine that Native peoples are childlike, not fully human, that they are pests and inconvenience, or that they're savages and terrifying. And that they're not American. I mean, legally speaking at this time, very specifically, the 14th Amendment grants citizenship rights to African Americans and specifically says excluding Indians. So if there is a choice, I think the choice is not to listen to all those other voices that are pulling him in a different direction and to choose this much more comfortable philosophical and moral and economic position, which is I have the right to dismantle these people. I wonder if there's a way in which Twain is also adding something to that discourse in terms of associating these set of negative stereotypes specifically with a certain kind of generic writing, with the kind of overblown romantic rhetoric that he codes as very specifically not American, dead, old-fashioned, antiquated in all the ways that we've been talking about, the kind of petrified or fossilized or extinct native. James Fenimore Cooper is obviously American, but Mm -hmm. he associates that kind of romantic rhetoric with Sir Walter Scott and with a tradition that he thinks of as non-Indigenous, paradoxically. I think you could even go a little closer to home. I mean, he's a real connoisseur of the dime novel and the kind of boy fiction that's all around. And every dime novel has, you know, Deadwood Dick, Prince of the Road is somehow also friendly with Sitting Bull, who he's also going to at some point possibly do battle with. It's like the John Wayne moment when he walks into a some native village and can suddenly sort of speak Comanche. One of the things that I think Twain is doing is positioning himself outside of a couple different romantic rhetorics, the Fenimore Cooper, the dime novel that comes out of the Fenimore Cooper tradition. Part of this then is a literary move. You know, in his writing of African-American characters, he finds at times moments of realism, despite his own desire to sentimentalize those characters and despite the desire of the culture to give us more palatable renditions of Black characters. There are moments in his fiction where we feel like he's able to penetrate the mask, but he doesn't have those tools or the impulse when it comes to Native peoples. He's not interested in the kind of realism that makes him the father of realism in 19th century America. When you talk about American history, it's not that Twain is reshaping it or influencing it so much as reflecting it. Yeah. But when you talk about American literature... There is a legacy that Twain leaves, and he's very much shaping everything that comes after him. Yeah. Like the prose style he establishes is really influential. And so in that world, I, I kind of wonder about the legacy of mm-hmm. coding the Native in this way. There are a couple ways to read Twain's literary legacy. And obviously, one is this movement toward a kind of realism But what undercuts that is that as a humorist, he has to traffic almost in caricature. There are times when Twain's writing traffics in stereotype in a way that helps us to kind of deconstruct stereotype. 
But there are other times when he's just pulling out the types off the shelf in order to reproduce the same values that he still finds amusing. So at no point in his life did he feel the urge to give to a native character the kind of humanity that he's able to find for Roxy or even a character like Tom and Puddinghead Wilson. When you look at the amended material, which I think is fascinating, if you look at the stuff he cuts from Puddinhead, he understands where Malcolm X is going to come from. He understands the roots of Black rage. He understands that Black characters wear masks. He understands that the, quote, new Negro is coming down the road in the form of W.B. Boys. He understands double consciousness. Right. But there is this enormous refusal to grant that to Native peoples. I think for me, that story is less about the failure of Mark Twain than about how dug in the American appetite is to eradicate Native peoples. That's the story that Carrie has told in such detail. I think it will end up being one of the most important books of the last 25 years, 30 years of Twain scholarship, because no one's done it. You wrote in your review, this really very specifically has the potential to change how we teach Twain. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to just wrap up by asking you how you think it will change your teaching, either in terms of what works you choose or how you present them. Well, you're absolutely right. I will definitely teach the sections of roughing it differently. I will, even if I don't assign the entire roughing it to an undergraduate class, because at this point they can barely read a postage stamp. But I think that it's crucial to include the representation of the Goshute Indians. I would begin by teaching the adventures of Tom Sawyer mm -hmm. by foregrounding Injun Joe and not as simply a kind of childhood boogeyman to take seriously, quote, Injun Joe's native identity and to absolutely invite the students to drill down into where that portrait comes from and how it resonates at the time that Twain's writing it. And then I would also invite them to go to the absolutely horrific place of Hannibal and to look at how they have Injun Joe's cave. As Carrie discusses in the book, the mislabeling of some poor man's grave with Injun Joe Try going into that cave and convincing those tour guides that there was no such human. This is actually what Carrie's book reveals to me is this incredible cultural engine that wants to justify our treatment of Native peoples and the way in which Twain is actively a part of that. Actually, that really weds together these two seemingly disconsonate, completely disjointed approaches to Twain on race. There's an inordinate amount of attention paid to his depiction of African Americans and a complete willing blindness of his depiction of Native Americans. Yeah. But both serve a certain necessity within the story that Americans tell ourselves about who we are. Oh, yeah. The closest he gets is, it, I think, in the death of, quote, Injun Joe. I think Carrie does a fabulous job of historicizing that figure, yeah. of drawing out all the different things Twain writes about him at different stages of his life, including very late in life, where he talks about, like, I don't remember how I killed him off. Right. You starved him. You starved yeah. him. Well, and specifically in the natural landscape, turning the land against him, this person who's supposed to be native indigenous yeah. has the special knowledge of the land is then yeah. suffocated by it, yeah. starved by it. That is the part of the book 
Injun Joe needs to die for Huck Finn to be born. There is right. no Huck Finn story without that monetary yeah. inheritance. Yeah. It also does the dialectic that Carrie talks about mm-hmm. between the desire to play Injun and the complete horror, terror, disgust. Yeah. The repulsion and desire. Yeah. And that, that it's interesting that Tom Sawyer has a more conventional ending for a novel than really any other novel that Twain gives us. The troubled ending of Huck Finn is to some extent Twain's acknowledgement, consciously or not, that there will be no easy end to the issues of race. His tacit acknowledgement that there's work to be done, there's reparation to be made, that we can't figure out what to do with this black human. But Injun Joe, just kill him off, problem solved. And the West is clear for Mm -hmm. him to light out for the territories. Yeah. I think that the work that she has done here, the critical work, the historical work is amazing. And I'm really impressed by the text. And I hope that it gets the attention that it deserves. Thanks again to Anne for giving us such thoughtful insight into Carrie's work. For the second half of our discussion, we'll be hearing from two Twain scholars in conversation with one another. One of them is another former editor of the Mark Twain Annual, John Bird, who is also an emeritus professor of English at Winthrop University. We'll also be joined by Susan Harris, who is both a former president of the Mark Twain Circle and an emerita professor of English at the University of Kansas. Given these credentials, Susan and John are particularly well-positioned to describe the momentous impact that Carrie's book has already had on Twain's studies. As they explain, Carrie's intense historical work has proven incredibly productive in enabling research projects of their own. More than that, however, the book has also gotten them thinking about their own past educational experiences in the 50s and 60s and how we can do a better job addressing Native issues in the classroom today. If I could just ask each of you to speak a little bit about your impressions of this book overall. I've read it now twice. I was finishing a book of my own where I had a chapter on Indigenous people in Australia, and I needed to see what Carrie said, and it was very useful. My overwhelming impression is how much research she did. I am so impressed by the meticulousness of the research that she has amassed detail after detail, creating a really, really thick fabric for Twain and his attitudes in terms of his family, in terms of his region, and in terms of the country. She describes it as archaeology, unearthing this entire cultural context, not just for Twain and his family, but for the entire historical era and their attitudes. I was equally impressed, if not more, if that's possible, waiting a long time for this book. Gary started this a number of years ago. It was certainly worth the wait. I reviewed it for American Literary Scholarship, one of the best critical studies of Mark Twain in recent years. I did 10 years of the review, reading all of the Twain scholarship each year. So I have a really good handle on what's happened in the last 10 years and really the last 25 or so. And I really do believe that it's one of the best. It's the kind of book where you learn something on every page. Driscoll has provided the definitive study of one of the most misunderstood and confusing aspects of Twain's life and work. 
his relationship with Native Americans has been an enigma and one that different people have tackled in different ways, but none with the comprehensive way that Carrie Driscoll did. It's truly an impressive book. This is where Carrie starts, that there has been this lacuna in Twain studies that few have really talked about Twain's depiction of Native Americans, even as so much attention has been paid to his relation to race in regards to the issue of enslavement. Why do you think that was the case for so long? Part of the reason is that tension on Mark Twain's racial attitudes toward African Americans especially, but also the Chinese. He's been held up as a hero in those regards. As Howell said, the most deconstructed Southerner ever and the Lincoln of our literature. And his attitudes toward Native Americans, people, they couldn't figure out how to fit it in. Like, why was he this way? This seemingly unenlightened when he's so seemingly enlightened when it comes to issues of race with other people. It really addresses where I think this will point us for ensuing scholarship. If we jump into the field of colonial settlers and nation building, I think in many ways the book opens up a field because I see Twain in this context as an expression of national sentiments in all of their contradictions. What do we have to forget in order to nation build? What do we have to forget in order to dominate a country? We have to forget the Indians. And that's part of a global pattern. Ambitav Ghosh's The Nutmeg's Curse, which is all about the impact of European settler colonialism on indigenous peoples and landscapes. Colonial powers come in, and in order to reap the benefits of the land, they have to kill off, dispossess, displace other peoples, and how that becomes naturalized. So I see Twain growing up in that culture. It's really important to remember the context. To be white in 19th century America was to ignore the Native Americans or to be violently opposed to them. To be perfectly happy with governmental processes of removal, of extermination. Mark Twain would have been quite the outlier if he had been more sympathetic toward the Native Americans. This is his blind spot, and that's what Carrie exposes. But one thing that really hit me was attitudes handed down to him from his mother, from Jane Lamp mm-hmm. Clemens that she had a great antipathy toward Indians because of her experience with The Montgomery Massacre. Yeah, the Montgomery Massacre. We have to remember that there were many white people in the 19th century who knew people or were very close to people who had been victims of white and Indian violence. The things that we learn in childhood imprint on us very, very strongly. I know as a person who grew up in the South, it was very difficult for me to erase my admiration for Robert E. Lee and the Confederacy and the Lost Cause because Mm -hmm. that was what was given to me as mother's milk and father's words. As Mark Twain said, that education is a process of unlearning, and we have to unlearn a great deal. But unfortunately for him, when it came to Native Americans, his unlearning process was quite incomplete, as Gary shows over and over. My favorite Twain line on education is a cauliflower is just a cabbage with a college education. 
John, you're pointing out this almost willing blindness within the field, this need, as Jonathan Rack talks about in his landmark book, this need to idolize Twain, to make him into this humanist icon that almost necessitates this ignoring of native erasure that's going on in his books. And Susan, you're bringing that up as emblematic of not just something within Twain studies, but in the country, in the nation, and what it means to be American, that this is not separable, that this is not an accident. Thinking about it in this way, it's not just a study of Twain, but a study of our country's history. But also, I was curious about what you said, John, with this idea that Twain was a product of his day, because one of the things I found most fascinating reading Carrie was how often she drew comparisons to people around Twain at the time that were advocating against Indian removal or were taking more enlightened views, and he would have known them and would have spoken to him. Yeah, I was really struck by that, too. It's his brother, Orion. He had that example of his brother, his older brother, who was quite enlightened. Orion was very anti-slavery. He was an abolitionist, a part of the puzzle. What findings or what moments in the book surprised you? My favorite part of the book, and I think really the highlight of the book, is right at the center of it. Terry devotes a whole chapter to a short Mark Twain work, The Noble Red Man, and it's an academic tour de force. She delves into this short, very short piece like an archaeologist, and she found so many layers to it. When she tackles, especially short pieces like The Noble Red Man, she tackles them as if she was deconstructing a poem. You know, I once heard Jacques Derrida deconstruct for three hours, and she does that. I think there's a lot of pedagogical value in her approach. I found myself reading and thinking, if I'm to teach this piece, this is how I would want to approach it. I would want to bring this into the classroom. Would you Uh, teach that piece? The Noble Red Man? Yes. That's a good question. And if so, to whom? This is a question I would love to throw back in terms of Twain pieces that you different pieces you might teach or pieces that you might teach differently as a result of reading this book. I think I would teach that essay in conjunction with the Orion poem, having the two pieces side by side and saying, based on these pieces in front of us, what can we say about 19th century attitudes toward the native and how do we see those embedded in the discourse today? What is still with us? I can tell you that one of the most successful classes I've had with Twain, and this was a graduate class, I had a batch of creative writers. So one of the creative writers asked me if for her final paper, she could finish Huck and Tom among the Indians. So she wrote a chapter and I thought it was brilliant. And actually it got published in the Mark Twain Annual. I was very proud of them for doing that. If I was to teach the noble Redman to bring things like that into the classroom and to give students, you know, give them the reins. I love that project. I love the palimpsestic aspect of it. I'm thinking about Huck and Tom among the Indians that Carrie mm-hmm. covers so well, because it's a part of a book that I'm working on right now about Mark Twain in 1884, a microbiography really of that year. And that was one of the things that he wrote in Elmira during the summer of 1884. As soon as he finished Huckleberry Finn, he embarked on the sequel. But his problem was, after doing all this reading that Carrie talks about, Dodge and these other sources, it was leading him to a place where he could not go. 
It would be the rape of the white girl by the Indians. And he stopped in mid-sentence. He couldn't write that far. And the reason was because he was trying to deal through realism to try to explode romantic ideas of the Indians, which is what he always did in his writing. And that's one of the problems, I think, with the way that we've dealt with Mark Twain on this subject of the Native Americans. I often saw it through the lens of a battle between romanticism and realism, and not as much a battle between the whites and the red men, thinking about it in terms of the racial conflict. I had thought about it in that way, too. It seems that Twain's investment is the question of a prose style. And you got at this earlier, Susan, when you were talking about settler colonialism and the project of creating not only a nation, but a national literature. For Twain, the question is how to sound American, not to sound like Sir Walter Scott, right? And realism and language of the young Western cowboys going off into the land, their slanginess, their vulgarities is part of the appeal for him. But then what does that do to associate Native peoples with a prose style that is both dead in his mind, hopelessly antiquated, and foreign, specifically coded un-American? That seems to have a racial component as well, yeah? It certainly does. But first of all, I don't think Twain would ever think of what we call Native Americans as Native Americans. For him, they were Indians. He thinks in racial groups that don't have to do with admitting original ownership. To him, Native would be associated with the know-nothings who called themselves Native Americans. So already, by the time he was a child, the term Native had been co-opted to talk in terms of Native Americans when talking about Twain's attitude toward North America's indigenous peoples. It's an anachronism in itself, and it leads us astray. So I think, you know, for Twain to be a Native writer, as he understood Native, meant to do exactly as you said. It was, you know, the North American Review in the 1820s had called for a Native American literature. They wanted to hear the accents. They wanted to hear the voices of the people who lived here. They meant the white people who lived here. Yes. is what they meant. Native Native means white. Yeah. I was thinking about Walter Blair's groundbreaking book of American humor from the 30s, Native American Humor. But yeah. he didn't mean humor of Indians. He meant yeah. white. He meant white. He and, and, meant black in there. And the ultimate in Native American humor was Mark Twain. I think it also jives in with the whole idea of erasing one history in order to supplant it with another. So for Twain, as for pretty much all Western European people at this point, history means buildings. It means literacy, words written down. Everything else is natural history. Mm. It's animals. So he did not see Indians, who he thought of as preliterate, as having history. That's what's so vexing about Mark Twain on this point, because you think about late in Huckleberry Finn, when Huck comes to Aunt Sally's and he talks about the steamboat explosion, she says, oh, Glenn, was anybody hurt? And he says, no, ma'am, killed. And he uses the N-word, of course. And then she says, oh, well, that's good, because sometimes people do get hurt. And clearly, 
thing is satirizing that kind of blindness and that kind of ignorance that this good Christian woman had about blacks, yet he had that same blindness about Indians. This is from uh, Carrie's book. The paucity of critical inquiry regarding Twain's conflicted attitudes toward native peoples as reflected in the fiction, letters, journalistic sketches, and speeches, and that really shows the breadth of his work that she minds, that he wrote over a period of nearly 60 years is, in my estimation, not a matter of oversight, but deliberate avoidance. And it's really this idea that we, as the Mark Twain community of scholars, have turned our own blind eye to this. It's been an avoidance. And as I said earlier, I think it's because, in general, we didn't want to face this part about Mark Twain, or we didn't have the tools to unpack it. I don't know about your education, but I grew up on the East Coast in an urban area. And honestly, there was almost nothing about Native Americans. I mean, you know, we dressed up like Pocahontas for Thanksgiving. And the whole history of decimation, the children being abducted and forcibly put in the boarding school and, you know, being made to work and being basically trained in service. I didn't know any of this history. And the answer is because we were taught. So back to your point, John, I think one thing is we didn't have the tools until recently. There had to be enough books, enough articles, and enough Native American speakers speaking very forcibly to open our eyes to the gaps. And to your point earlier, Susan, about how Twain is a bellwether or embodiment of racial contradictions in the country more broadly, he's certainly not the only one who is not seeing Native Americans as American. This is a period in American history where they're not granted citizenship. That's one way of erasing people, isn't it? You're not a citizen, therefore you don't matter. I mean, we see it today with immigrants. We pass all kinds of laws. We hand out all kinds of monies that only apply to citizens. I wanted to talk to, yeah, this issue of what kind of education did we have? We were inundated. Almost all the shows were Westerns. It was Cowboys and Indians. And that's what we played in the backyard. The Indians were othered, but they were also romanticized at the same time. And they were often being played by white actors in red face. And they spoke in a way that was a caricature. I'm 116th Cherokee. So I did have uh, family knowledge of the past of the Cherokees. And I was told stories by my grandmother, of her grandmother, who was a full-blooded Cherokee who married a white man. And then when the removal came of the Cherokees in western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee, they didn't go on the Trail of Tears They were a part of the band called the Koala Indians, meaning cave. They hid in caves. So I had that sense of Indian past, but we weren't taught Indian history in the same way that we weren't taught black history. We were taught white history. White history and whitewashed history. I was struck in Carrie's book when she quotes Philip Deloria on the dialectic of this combination of wanting to appropriate, which Twain does consistently throughout his lifetime, painting himself as the native going to England with tomahawk in hand and being a kind of rabble rouser and playing Indian while simultaneously having this disgust, this loathing of native peoples, what Deloria calls this dialectic of simultaneous desire and repulsion. 
I know that this is a time when, as you wrote recently for the Mark Twain Circular, Susan, that Twain studies more broadly is trying to reassess Twain's place in the current racial climate. So very much this question of what do we teach and why? What is Twain's place in the classroom, in the canon? You know, a number of scholars I've talked to have preferred to teach Puddinghead Wilson, for instance, for exactly the reasons you described, John. Stories from our history that have not been taught. Given our current racial climate, given a moment in our pedagogy where we are trying to teach American history differently than the way it was taught as you describe it the white history, the whitewashed history, where we're trying to bring more voices into the conversation, not displace previous voices, but have more of a broad discourse of different kinds of being American and different kinds of American history. What are some ways to teach Twain in relationship to Native history? I think it would be a really interesting thing, I'm thinking about it as you speak, to pair Puddinghead Wilson with, say, the noble Redman. Because the thing that everybody likes about Puddinghead Wilson is Twain's consciousness that race is a social construct. It's what moves us into our modern era of thinking about race. So a conversation, a classroom conversation about what he could see and what he couldn't see might be incredibly instructive, training students to think about history and how it's constructed. I love that also because the idea of race being socially constructed, as you say in Puddenham Wilson, the novel itself is aware of the social construction of race. The plot hinges on it. In The Noble Red Man, you have this notion of the quote-unquote Indian that has been constructed by Cooper that Twain is committed to deconstructing, but isn't aware, seemingly, that he is just replacing it with a different set of tropes, pernicious in their own way. The concept of teaching Mark Twain has always been dangerous. From my very first teaching experience as a high school teacher 40 plus years ago, the racial language, of course, but also the racial attitudes. But I think it's even more perilous now, not just teaching white history and not teaching whitewashed history, but now we enter in with critical race theory. Mark Twain has always been under attack, but he's going to be under even more attack in the coming years. Both of you have spoken to the ways Carrie's work has been generative for your own scholarship. Susan, can I ask you to speak a bit more as to how Carrie's research on Twain's representation of Aboriginal peoples in Australia ended up influencing you? He writes some, but in fragments, about Australian mainland Aborigines, whom he never met. But he devotes a whole chapter to the Black Wars of Tasmania. And when he was in Tasmania, it was not part of Australia. It was a separate colonial entity. And the Black Wars had been terrible, and he latched on to them. I mean, I think the trip around the world was very much a turning point for Twain in his understanding of separate colonialism. And he was on the side of the defeated. The great anomaly, which Kerry points out, of course, is that he never really had the same sympathy for Native Americans who underwent the same processes. I think this is a really important point to make about Kerry's book. So I'll quote her a bit more. 
His representations are vexingly erratic and paradoxical, commingling antipathy and sympathy, fascination and visceral repugnance. So there is this mixture, and she captures this really well, the dual nature. She points out that previous critics have either vilified or idealized what Twain was up to. Her intention is neither to defend nor to defame the writer, but to explore the complexity of his engagement with Native populations, both at home and abroad. People find the Mark Twain that they want to find, and what Carey's done is show us the fullness of his treatment of Native peoples. I think that's right, and I think it really connects with the Philip Deloria point of the dialectic of fascination and disgust, that this is something you find in Twain, also something you find in America as part of our founding national myth, from playing Indian with the Boston Tea Party to the Trail of Tears, that you have both claiming this kind of appropriated Native identity and totally dispossessing and engaging in acts of extreme aggression against these people. So like when we study this in Twain, this is to your point, Susan, we're studying something that goes far beyond author studies. You see this contradiction in Huck and Tom among the Indians between being very much attracted to what he has learned about Native spirituality and repulsed by the Indians themselves. And I think this wraps into what you just said about Americans liking to play India, that there is, as part of our national framework, there is a longing for a certain kind of spirituality that our conventional religions don't give us. But it's something that has to do with the land, which we have raped and murdered, and with home. And I think if Twain had had more exposure, I think he would have really turned around. Because I think if he had understood exactly what the cultural life and the spiritual life of Native Americans was like, I think he would have resonated to that. It would have humanized them. It's certainly an interesting thought experiment I think regardless of the counterfactual of what Twain could or should have done, it's certainly something that we can do with the help of Carrie's book, as you said, as we have this accumulation, this accretion of scholarly research and attention being paid to Native studies approaches to Twain. It's something we can do today, recognize avenues for really much needed scholarship in the field. And with that, what he didn't appreciate, what he couldn't appreciate because of his own training and then try to apply that to ourselves. What are our blindnesses? What do we not know that we don't know? I really have a lot of hope for the future of Mark Twain's scholarship. Carrie's book does a great job with this, what was a willful gap. We're ending up with a much more interesting Mark Twain. The Mark Twain Circle has put out a call for papers, not your grandfather's Mark Twain. It's really enriching our field. Is there anything you would like to shout out from the Mark Twain Circle in terms of calls for papers and upcoming opportunities? (laughs) We have two calls for the American Literature Association. One is for paper proposals for Not Your Grandfather's Mark Twain. And the other is Mark Twain and medicine, disease, thinking about bringing off the pandemic. We've got the conference coming up in August 
For graduate students, there's a wonderful workshop to rewrite a paper into an article. John will be leading the workshop. And as you can tell from everything he said, he really knows how to do this. And let's hope that we're there in person because I'm tired of seeing everybody on a Brady Bunch screen. Thank you so much for your generous time. This has been a really enjoyable conversation. I'm just really grateful that I got the chance to talk to you. Thank you very much. And I would just urge people who found this interesting to read Carrie's book, Mark Twain Among the Indians and Other Indigenous Peoples from the University of California Press 2018. As I said, I think it's one of the best books of the last quarter century on Mark Twain. I agree. And it's now out in paperback oh, good. at a very reasonable price. That was John Bird and Susan K. Harris. Previously, you heard from Anne Ryan, your host for this, the premiere episode of her three-part series on Mark Twain Among the Indians, is Mika Turim Nigren. Next time, she'll be speaking to the author, Carrie Driscoll. In the meantime, for more about this episode, including a bibliography of works discussed within it, go to marktwainstudies.com backslash reviewing Twain. This has been a production of the American Vandal Podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel, Executive Producer. Our music today is from Steve Webb, caretaker of Quarry Farm. Thank you for listening.